My name is Andrew Bolton, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the Chief Client Officer here at Notch, and on the Pros and Content podcast, we'll be featuring a series of truly remarkable content leaders, people who believe in storytelling and all have a unique perspectives on the importance of measurement, scalability, and the optimization of content. Hello, and welcome to the Pros and Content podcast, where we shine a light on how brands are using content to accelerate their success. Today, I'm joined by David Parker, who is the Vice President of Digital and Solution Design at Philip Morris International. Hello, David, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to uh, to meet you. Likewise, likewise. We were just talking uh, that you're based uh, over in, in Switzerland. You were in the U.S. before that. Uh, first yeah. question, biggest difference between Switzerland and the United States of America? <laughs> <laughs> fondue i think fondue has to be the the national state dish of uh a cheese on bread is something to get acclimatized to when you come from uh ribeye steak from chicago it's quite a differential <laughs> yeah well you could have gone up to wisconsin and they have cheese curds there so that's close. it is true actually at kimberly clark we were in the fox city so you're right we we did go up there and uh there's a good uh european influence up in wisconsin so Okay, obviously it worked, so I then moved to Switzerland. Yeah, you're like, this seems good, I'm going to Switzerland. Um, that's a good good segue. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got to uh, where you are today, um, what your passions are, and, and, and what informs your work at, at PMI. Yeah, so I mean, how I got uh, today, I mean, I've uh, been in the industry a long time, uh, you know, before kind of Mark Tech and, and we, we see the industry where it is now. You know, I've always been in technology. You know, I came out of technology uh, at, at university, um, and and really got into into the world of advertising quite quickly in the UK and London. You know, I did uh, you know university of uh, uh, with uh, with Apple and went through the the Apple process way way back when they were worth nothing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know really got into advertising and press and and uh, that's where I started off and I've stayed in there ever since. And, you know, from my perspective, I've kind of always worked with technology. You know, it goes back to kind of pre-internet times, so to date myself. But, you know, the the content business has been around for a long, long time before where we see it now. You know, one of the big explosions back in, you know, the 90s, um, uh, early 90s was, was press, you mm-hmm. know. And, and you think about the explosion of content now, well, you went from single... Uh, form papers to multi-form papers and if you look at the newspapers of today you know the ad space in those newspapers is maybe 10 to 15 times the size as it was you know back in the 80s and the 70s so there's always been a um a need for you know more and more content and more and more you know consumer-based content across different formats and i've been in 30 years now so that's kind of uh where i am now and I've been fortunate that I've been on kind of three sides. You know, I've worked for 10 years in ad hoc businesses, in ad agencies, production companies, Mm -hmm. uh, tech companies. Uh, Then I had my own software company for 10 years, and we did a lot of uh, what we call media tracking platforms for press. And it's not dissimilar from paid advertising for the digital uh, now, which is all about trafficking ad units at the right time to the right cost ratios. Uh, And then I landed up in the ad industry, and I came to the U.S., Spent five years at McCann World Group in New York, um, working at their corporate level to try and figure out this kind of transformation into digital uh, from the AOR, uh, and then moved to Kimberly Clark in in Chicago to to really uh, shift from kind of brand advertising or, or traditional brand content to more uh, data informed content. There was a CMO called Clive Serkin there, who really was one of the early identifiers who kind of paraphrase that it's not about digital marketing it's about marketing in a in a digital world and i think that was the light that kind of you know lit the future for for me over the past 10 years i think he kind of nailed it you know that a lot of people were talking about digital marketing and he'd go no 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 this isn't the issue the issue is we have to learn how to market in a digital world and a digital enabled world and and that really allowed us at kc to really push technology to the front mm-hmm. and we kind of started to make decisions through technology platforms or let's say through the technologies that delivered the experience to the consumer became quite important and you know we learned some valuable lessons had a great team very small team we achieved i think an awful lot 
And I did that for five years. And then I got the call from PMI, which was obviously a completely different animal, um, to, to kind of do a very similar thing. And that's what I've been doing here for three and a half years. But the challenge here is, you know, KC didn't have the transformation of the business. What you see at PMI is a massive shift, you know, in the business transformation. I mean, they are completely changing their revenue model. And if you've read anything about PMI, you know, they're, they're changing their organization for a modern future away from, you know, the traditional tobacco business. Yep. Uh, and that is an interesting thing to do. You don't get many opportunities like that in your life to sit in an organization. And I came here because I didn't think it was, uh, I don't consume the, these products to, to be clear. And that's not really an issue, but it's very rare you get into a company where it's not a matter of if, it, it, it's really a matter of when. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is a little bit similar to the car industry, you know, with, with Tesla. You know, the, the, the point of, it was a lot of if it was going to occur. Now it's just a matter of when. Right. Uh, and I think this industry is in the same way, is that the consumers will no longer tolerate and society will not tolerate, you know, the consumption of nicotine. And whether you're drinking caffeine or alcohol or nicotine, it's not the subject uh, and discussion. But the fact is the form factor is no longer acceptable. So our game now is how do we help that transition occur because the when has left. Yeah, uh, it's, it's just now a matter of when when we go and how we do it and, and how we transform this business because essentially we, we have to do it because if we don't do it, then we won't meet the requirements of the organization. You know? Yeah. And it's a long the- story, but that's why I'm here. Yeah, and that's a certainly a, a unique challenge that we'll we'll, we'll get into uh, a bit more. Before we talk uh, about the PMI experience, I'd like to kind of go back in time to the to the Kimberly Clark experience. You're interesting in the fact that your title um, uh, at the time uh, contained both content and technology, um, which is something that you just don't see a whole lot. Like, how did that role come to be, and in 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 how did you express the value of that role like within the organization? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, the role came about because there was a, a guy called Maya Gupta, who's well-known, you know, in, in the industry, went to KC. And I, I think he specifically were, was vastly intrigued by the, the capabilities of technology. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that technology gives you, and I've always said this, in one of the principles here, it gives you scale and sustainability, okay? And these are two things that technology is really good at doing for you, okay? You know, it it doesn't work nine to five, you know, it doesn't go on vacation, you know. Uh, Okay, it's designed by human beings, so it's not always perfect. But, you know, when you're in a big organization, you need to move quick. You need to understand how you can move quick. And it's not, you know, I quite often hear people say, digital gives me speed. Yeah, but but speed in a single linear track isn't going to help you when you need to go global and find the consumers on all of these channels that you don't really own anymore. You don't control, you don't influence. They're there, they're controlling, they're influencing, you know, the decisions made. So clearly, you know, when you went from kind of, you know, a multi-channel to omni-channel, you know, how the hell do you reach these channels with this kind of content experience at scale you know, in a sustainable way to keep the messaging always ongoing. And it's clear the only thing that can do that for you is technology. Yeah. And and the second thing was, you know, that almost all of the the kind of content experiences to the data layers were all coming through these increasingly, you know, um, uh, developed technologies. And I go back, I mean, I do a lot of presentations around this. You know, you've got to understand kind of what happened to the industry. So to answer your question, why was it content and technology? You've got to understand why it happened. And I think me people, even today, globally, and when I ask CMOs, I don't understand what really fundamentally changed. And there's four things that changed the business. One was the foundation of the internet. And this was in 19, you know, 1990, but Tim Berners-Lee did it. And a year later came Wi-Fi, okay? In 1991, Wi-Fi was invented. Then there was a big gap. And then in 2004, Facebook was founded. So now you had a, an internet way of getting distribution. You had a way of connecting a device. And then Facebook come up with a social platform that people can engage with. But it was only in 2007 when Apple put the camera in the phone. After that, the world changed. And I mean, and, and brands didn't see this coming. I mean, this is a big thing for me. And, 
And if you look at Facebook's growth ratio in 2004 to 2007, it was not huge. I mean, you look at it and it was not progressive, you know, in any way. But as soon as Apple put that camera, you know, in the phone, and I know Nokia did it earlier, but as soon as Apple enabled that, then those four things became the most powerful consumer platform that we've ever seen. And from 2007 onwards, essentially, uh, content marketing, you know, changed forever. Yeah, because this ruled, you know, everything that, that was around. And the brands were really slow to, to cotton onto it. The agencies were very slow. It was disruptive. They didn't want to see it coming. And uh, but at the end of the day, now it consumes almost everything. It's between you and everything else. It's it's you know between you and your wife, between you and your pet and the family. It's it's the big thing. So it was obvious to us at KC that we had to incorporate technology in all the decisions we made, and that technology really led to how do we enable data to inform on content, to you know to to engage with the consumer, then get the feedback loop to understand whether that content resonates or not. But to us, it's a very logical way to go, and and we incorporated tech from from day one. And I think the other thing is we were driving two things: we need to be more effective, yeah, because we weren't going to get you know more dollars without uh, proving we could grow business. Right. And at the bottom end of it, you know, to be effective, you do have to be efficient. So we took another approach here: why it's content and technology, because. A lot of people invest in technology to drive efficiency, but if that didn't, that not necessarily translates to being effective. Okay? Just because you're very efficient doesn't mean you understand how you're driving consumer performance. But if you want to do consumer performance, yeah, have to be efficient. You will inherit efficiency. So we took the approach to use investment in technology to grow our top line. Uh, and then we knew that we would also impact the bottom line. Uh, at the same time, so almost getting, you know, $2 worth for every dollar we invested. Uh, and that's why we continue to grow with technology and we did it almost everywhere. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, those, those four, four things, you know, internet, Wi-Fi, Facebook, a lot of that's about distribution and the sharing of content and, you know, the, the accessibility of content. But the last one, which is the camera and the phone is about the creation of content, right? You've got it. Um, yeah. You know, Talk to us a little bit about the, the, the power of user-generated content and how you then mix that with, you know, brand-created content. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, to, to me, it's a, it, again, I think this is the very interesting dichotomy, you know, of two football teams <laughs> all trying to achieve the same goal, but clearly with different views. And, and, you know, I come from the house of a big brand and they're very proud about the brand messaging and what the brand means. And as I pointed out before, I, I keep it quite simple is that, you know, if you view the consumer through the lens of the brand, I think you're a traditional brand company. You know, you're a traditional company that says, look, I have a position in, in life and this is what I think you should be doing if you experience my brand. And I think that's very much a push uh, kind of capability. Um, and I personally think it's a rather old-fashioned way of uh, of looking at consumer. The other way around is do you view the brand through the lens of the consumer? Uh, and I think that is <clears throat> very much a chief customer officer view. Mm-hmm. You know, and you see this CMO sits on the brand in a way and has quite a short tenure, and you can kind of guess why maybe, because you can only swap out your agency and your content providers until it, you're not moving the needle. Or you become a chief customer officer where you become intensified around the data and you understand that the consumer's engagement with your brand and the responsive creativity and curation, you know, is something that really generates, you know, the next knock on with the consumer base. So, I mean, I think these are two different things. What you've got to do is try and marry them, Mm -hmm. you know, and you only marry them through understanding, you know, the marketplaces you operate in and, and the consumer behavior. So this is the, uh, the two things. The other thing is that there are two different types of content. Branded content is very long form, you know, so it, it's pretty highly expensive to build. It's pretty long form content that you can last. You can do your brand and you do it for five years and you leave that brand in there and you reuse this content. But it's also um, central. So it, it's not localized. Mm-hmm. So it, it lasts a long time because it's not specific to a market. So you can keep it on the shelf for a long time and pull it off and go, I'm going to use it. UGC is completely different. 
UGC is now content. It's in market. It's relevant for that market dynamic. And it only works in that market. It doesn't travel well. It doesn't last long. You know, it's short life, shelf life, but it's ever, ever coming. You know, so like branded content, which produce once every year or whatever else, this is like every day, every hour, every, you know, every 15 seconds. And I think, you know, I did a, um, a session with, uh, with NewsCred five years ago. And, you know, the question was, you know, about the, the same kind of question. And back in those days, five years ago, I think we figured out at KC that for every one piece of branded content we produced, there was about 3,000 pieces of content talking about your brand with more relevance in the same timeline. Mm-hmm. So the game was over with. I mean, you, you can come in and say, I'm going to fight this, or you go in and understand what that content is and find the relevance out of that content and reuse it. So I think there's a, a, a mix of both, but I do think that the UGC and the power of you created uh, and the creative that's coming from that uh, it is is remarkably effective in terms of uh, cost per acquisition. And even here where I am, our highest performing content is user-generated content. Yeah. yeah, Price per dollar, price per view, price for whatever else. You can say what you want about the branded content, but the stuff that converts and I can attach a revenue to is UGC content. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, I definitely agree with you. I think that one thing that we may have seen through the pandemic, um, which might impact that mix a little bit, is that brands almost started becoming UGC creators in a way too, because like, the level of expectation around um, uh, the quality, the production quality and things like that were decreased because everyone was doing stuff like this. You're sitting in a room, you know, in creating content at a, at a lower cost and at a faster pace. And I know in talking to a lot of content teams at brands, they feel like that that's almost a trend that, that's going to continue to embrace, which is about more about getting quicker messages out, still having the larger pieces that support it. But it's about those like quick hits that they can participate in the conversation with and, and mesh that with the user-generated content as well. Yeah, and look, to answer that question, you know, how do you bring it together? You know, one of the things that we, I talked about data-informed, you know, uh, consumer marketing or data-driven uh, content marketing. And now we, we kind of get into the remit, and I've done this for quite a few years, but we start to atomize content. Mm-hmm. You know, so to give you an example, you know, you take a 30-second OLV ad unit, and you break it down into 31-second ad units. Now what you use is data to build it in real time. And depending on where that content is being delivered, you know, you automatically reconstruct the ad unit with the right CTA and benefit visualization. And I think this is what we've done. So if you atomize your content, you can then blend the two together as you become a publisher. And, and it's more natural. And I think this is the one thing that we did is not take whole set static content and try and marry them together is break them up into their small components, understand the value of that one second ad unit or the CTA, then reconstruct it in a way that almost has some of that native feel to it, mm-hmm. but it's not compromising both the brand nor the user generated content because you have to be really careful about the equity of these two that, you know, if you turn your UGC into branded stories, this is bad. And if you turn your brand into UGC stories, it doesn't wash. Right. So I think you've got to kind of blend it. And I think those companies that have managed to atomize content and really put strong taxonomy, strong data uh, structures to it, and then restitch it together, you know, are those that are now really forging ahead. And this is kind of my role at, uh, at PMI is in that role. And we don't see this as innovation. We see this as a necessity. I mean, essentially, we want to deliver more with less content with a better creative and curated story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't want to keep generating content all the time because you generate it and generally then you run out of uh, avenues to, to distribute it. So we're a little bit more careful now. And I think you know a lot of more maturing companies are beginning to think about content in a different way, which is how do I take these separate images and these CTAs and overlay them and then you know do this in real time through you know, DCO technology, AI technology, and tell a better story with better resonance uh, um, without generating more content and copy time and time again. And the other thing for us, we just can't afford it because the, the atomizing content also means that we can translate and transcreate this uh, content much mm-hmm. easier because the delay is actually in down the line. It's not really in your generation. It's in the ability to distribute 
you know, through particularly in our instance in a very, you know, legally uh, restrictive base, a lot of our copy has to go through a lot of stringent uh, coverage. So this is why you've got to kind of reform the science and, you know, going back onto the content technology, you, you've got tools that help you do it. You can't do it through a manual process. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, a, a lot of folks in our audience I know come from regulated industries, uh, specifically like financial services and whatnot. So I think that idea of the resonance of, you know, creating content that you can atomize down, reuse, repurpose, you know, transcreate in different places um, is is a effective way of taking, doing a lot with a little, I guess is the best way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, you know, you're uh, you obviously have a very creative side, and that's 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 awesome because you don't see it, that many technologists out there that also have that creative, uh, you know, understand the creative side of, of of content. You know, most of our audience um, are are folks that are are deep creatives, and I think that that internally they always have to work with technology teams to help them understand the impact that the content that they're having is, how to you know facilitate content creation and things like that. And it's been my experience in just talking that there always seems to be some internal friction between sometimes the the content creative teams and the brand teams and then the Martech teams that that support them. Um, can you just talk us through like the, the the like in your view, what is the role of marketing technology, how your team is structured, and how you facilitate that cooperation between technology and content to get to those optimal outcomes? Yeah, so let me answer the the, the last question first, yeah. which is, you know, how do you really construct your team to, to move forward? And, yeah, th there's definitely, you know, the, with the creatives and the agencies and the new media partners and your, your tech people in internal IT and MarTech, there's a lot of people with different opinions and different pools out, elsewhere. The one way that we resolved it um, both at Casey and here is you've really got to be kind of, as they say here, get the fish out on the table. You've got to be very transparent with what your end goal is. So, you know, unless you can define what your target is, which is the golden vision for the company, and let's take precision marketing as being the, the, the goal that we've got, because basically that essentially where L'Oreal landed five years ago, it's kind of like we need to really focus on precision marketing, which really describes a lot of what you're saying is that we took it down and got very, very open very early. So what we did and had done before is that we really brought in our partners very early. So we brought the ad agencies in, we brought the media partners in, we brought our creatives in, and we brought our technologists in, our technology partners. And we really got them in a, in a room. And we started this at KC, actually, that we generated what we call the content clinics. And these were content clinics were really... Um, events where, first of all, we brought in like the top eight of our technology providers and in front of the audience, our brand managers, our creatives, our IT people, and just got them to explain why they existed. <laughs> so it's very simple. I kind of went to them, and these were people like Bizarre Voice and Adobe and Wing and Sprinkler. And it's like, why do you exist? Can you just explain to the audience why you exist? Because if you can explain why you exist, we understand what you do. If I ask you to talk about why, how excellent you are, you'll tell me all these things that I don't really need to know. But, you know, what is unique that tells you to do? And then we kind of then paired them out and we paired these groups out in the afternoon and we got the technologists to sit with their technologists to figure out how you work with this technology. Then we took the, the brand and the agencies out and say, how do we create in your technology? How do we create and curate in your technology? And then we got the agencies to come back and actually do campaigns from a technology first point of view. So they actually came back with the technology providers, eight of them, and they actually built the campaign through the technology framework. And this got rid of a lot of issues because it enabled, you know, everybody to see the value of how technology can impact the outcome and whose role was was involved in in what. And we did this three times a year. We, we kind of had a squash ladder like these six work, these two didn't, swap these two out, bring in another technology company. And, you know, also it, it dropped the threat process. So initially the agencies were very resistant. Yeah, the agencies like, we're a creative agency, you can't do disrupt my creativity. Where in the end, the creatives were going, I want to get that technology. Why don't I play with that technology, you know? And, and one of the things we did with the agencies in particular, when you looked at a creative department, they were very much copywriters and art workers. And we put a data scientist in with them. 
So we said, okay, let's use data to help you create, you know, the best creative by data. And these guys loved it. It's like, I've never seen this before. Yeah, I've got all this data that generates ideas that, you know, that allow me to really focus off innovating off the data. So, so we, we just found major, major gains. And this broke down a lot of the barriers about the value of MarTech and did it impact IT and did it take the brand manager's control away? And we focused on outcomes. What is the outcome we need to do? And, and that's what we do. We do that kind of here as well. I have a very healthy relationship with IT, very healthy relationship with brand, you know, very healthy relationship with the agencies. And we're very much involved them in the MarTech discussions. That's kind of answered the last one and the kind of the first one, which is about kind of mark tech, you know, what, what does it sit and how does it happen in the company? And that's where it sat there. It sat there kind of between IT and the brand, but it has a healthy reason to exist because everybody clearly knows what it can do for them. And, and that was the best way we found it. I have seen companies that struggle by setting up a MarTech business and then Nobody's figuring out what the value of that MarTech is in terms of driving KPIs, acquisition, growth, you know, retention, whatever it is. So we took a very data-driven approach to it before. And then it finds its own place in the organization without threatening IT. Uh, your agencies go, I want more of this. You know, my, my tech partners go, wow, we've never seen a company like you, you know, talk to a tech company like this before. This is super cool. You know, we can do lots of good stuff with, with creatives. We never thought of doing this, this, and this. So that's how we did it. Very innovative, very quick, very fast, very agile. And, and that really settled it into the, into the organization. And we, you know, that's where we sit right now. And then we go through a maturity curve. You know, we bring in a lot of tech companies on focus very much on AI now. You know, don't like to use word, but how, how do we use artificial intelligence to to drive content? And we have four or five um, uh, innovation um, uh, sessions going on right now in the company, and and it's leveraging off the past investments. And then as it matures, we pass it to IT, and IT manages it and runs it. And then we bring the next generation and the next generation. So we we all have a role you know to play we don't hang on to mark tech you know we think mark tech is a more dynamic view and we keep churning it through the business and as we mature it we then put it into omni channel deployment and then allow the company to get the value you know we look at different cost centers uh cross charges to markets because that's where the pnl impact is so we kind of take a very healthy business approach to it <laughs> yeah it's basically yeah. like staging uh, interventions uh, it's like tech, technology content, creative intervent, interventions and enforcing the collaboration um, and having, to your point, like creatives have the lens of technology when they're creating you know, campaigns and programs is, is, a, yeah. is, a, is a, the reverse of the way that it, 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 it seems to typically happen at, at other brands. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, you take an example, you know, nobody wants to do a copy check in and, you know, and we have a vast amount of copies. So we use technology now with AI that, that uh, enables us to look at writability or readability mm -hmm. of, of content. Uh, and initially, you know, the creative agency is going, oh, are you going to destroy my creativity, you know, because, you know, I'm the one who's writing the narrative. Then they realize all we're doing is enhancing it. And then we're giving them better, you know, better direction to how that narrative works against different audiences. And they, they find it actually a lift. Now they elevate themselves to the next level. Um, and so we find that if we position it well and we take the thread away from the content creators and go, look, this is just a way that we can deliver the same message with the same readability across the equity of the organization is very, very important. So it, it's all about setting out, you know, the business goals um, and ensuring that they're clear. And, uh, and then as you go through this process with MarkTech, it, it, it either survives through the business performance or, or it dies. And some, mm -hmm. of course, it dies, you know, we, sometimes we're not ready. They're not ready. We can't scale it. You find limitations, but otherwise we have a healthy um, throughput of mark tech in the company. Not too much, not too little, enough to take value out of. Yeah. I would say that, you know, across the board, the biggest thing that technology uh, uh, teams at brands right now are dealing with is all the challenges, the, the tidal wave of challenges around GDPR, CCPA, 
the eventual death of the of the cookie um to name a, a few and there's probably acronyms that i'm not even aware of um that are that are challenges when you're thinking about the 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 future of of brand and digital and technology how important is the acquisition of first party data right now um and specifically like what is the role of content um in that acquisition of of first party data yeah, well, I mean, you, you won't be surprised to say it's it, it pretty much, you know, Google's decision last year put the frighteners on everybody and, and, and threw the industry into turmoil. Uh, we've got a reprieve, but that's all we've got is a, a, is a reprieve. So, I mean, first-party data acquisition and first-party data recognition, you know, is everything. It's just accelerating, uh, you know, the, the, the unknown DMP to the, the, the known CDB conversion. I mean... You know, we've deployed a very big uh, CDP in the organization. It's our central uh, platform. We think very much around the consumer. So we've brought in uh, three years ago a very, very big CDP that we're developing right now. Uh, and the sole goal of that is to acquire that first-party party data. Um, now, to get the first-party data, unless you're giving them an experience that is enabling them to be part of your experience, then you can only do that through through content. So you can't really push out there, please register now, um, experiences, you know, give us your email address and, and, and we'll, we'll send you a thank you email. I mean, you know, the, 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 the gains of like zero party data, which is, you know, to me, another acronym that's kind of popped up. But what we that that kind of unknown to known conversion is all about understanding what exchange are you prepared to give to the consumer and what benefits are they going to gain from from giving you you know this information and that zero party data exchange which is please just don't go and add them to fill out a form of 15 lines you know down to their birthday because you're not going to get this data what you have to do is build experiences which is helping them to understand you know, your brand experience in their eyes that enables them to give you voluntary information that's going to improve their outcome. Because nobody as a human being does anything without a value exchange. You know, I don't talk to you now unless I'm getting a value exchange. You don't really want to talk to me unless you've got the value exchange. Your check is in the mail. Your check is in the mail for your value exchange. Thank you. (laughs) But you know as well as me that as human beings, we take about five seconds to make up our mind what this exchanges whether i'm going to continue with that person or whether i'm going to go and, and and move on so you've got a very short period of time so you've got to understand you know what that exchange is so i think you know i've seen zero party data a long time ago we will use zero party data you know it's kind of what would you like us to know about you kind of context and don't go out there and say can you give me your email is it what would you like us to know about you are you an outdoor person indoor person a family person a dog person you know do you have kids? Do you not? I, I first saw this on fatherly.com in the US almost 10 years ago, you know, which is a site just for, you know, single men with families. And I just thought the way they did it was so cool because it's like, you know, are you an outdoor person? Have you got your kids at the weekend? And you could see these fathers who were desperate for anything, <laughs> you know, at this stage with three kids, like pressing every single button. Of course, the hits that these guys were getting were incredible. And, and, of course, in that day, there wasn't really a CDP, but the data they got was phenomenal, and it was willingly given because every time the c- consumer hit here, it came up with the go to the park, you know, go up the, the tower, go on a boat around the river, you know, and you can see these single dads going, holy shit, this is fantastic, yeah. you know, because I'm in the office from nine to five every day, and now I've got these kids, and I don't know what to do with them. So I think that's been missed, you know, and I think um, – I saw it 10 years ago, and I still think this exchange with the consumer is the way that voluntary, they will give you the first party data you're looking for, because voluntary, there's now a value right. to that exchange. And, you know, quite often we will drop, whether it's a mobile phone or email, that if you value, you know, you only have to do it subtly. If you value the output, would you drop your email? And we can keep your experience going with us. So it, it may be subtle, it may be indirect, but this is the approach that I think is the right approach. We use a lot of audience profiling to do it. You know, clearly as the inter- interaction goes on, on our own properties, we're beginning to start to segment that person and then use real-time data to give them the right experience. But we keep it short at three questions, mm-hmm. give the consumer a response. 
You know, you can't go four, five, six levels deep. They're just like, I'm bored. You know, three things, and then I need a response back from you. Three things, I need a response back from you. And, and this is kind of how we handle this uh, uh, unknown to, you know, second-party data to first-party data conversion. So it's big for us. Yeah. It, it, it's a big thing. It's certainly where we're focused on. We use a lot of UGC content to do this with, and we use a lot of this narrative around identifying what is the experience that people are looking for. And then we reset it. I mean, sometimes we gamify it and allow them to reset it and have another go. <laughs> they yeah. do. Believe it or not, we have some people who go through the same questions like five times, you know, uh, because they find it intriguing. And, uh, you know, that is uh, – we don't land too much in kind of like give me your email now. We we will play it for as long as they want to play and then see whether we get the exchange. Yeah. So it's big. I mean, it's the – yeah. I mean, value exchange is is, is the biggest thing and the, the value exchange of between content and brand and audience is is is, is the key. You know, I'm sure I'm not the first person who've said this, but you know, the the whole brand as publisher, um, uh, you know, theory that's kind of been bandied about, I think, for probably the past ten years of brands have to become publishers. Brands have to become publishers. I think a lot of people got very stuck on like that means that brands need to create content, but it's really further down than that. Like the reason why publishers are publishers is because they create content that provides value to an audience that then gives them data. And it's that power of the data that allows publishers to survive. And so brand as publisher yeah. is not, oh, go, go create content. It's actually go and harvest data, for you know, lack of a better term, from an engaged audience. And if you don't have the value exchange, um, I see this all the time with SEO content, like, oh, we create SEO content to get traffic. Well, well, then what is the value that you're giving the person once they arrive? Like, what is that experience like? And sometimes that's just not, <laughs> not really paid attention to um, as much as it should. I, I agree with you. I mean, the content, I mean, you, you saw my first thing, you know, data plus content e- equals consumer experience. And that consumer experience then enhances the content decisioning and the data validation on the back channel. And I agree with you at the end of the day, uh, sorry to be blunt, but but content is, is a data enhancer for me. I mean, this is, you, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, when I go back to the business and we look at investment, it's all about the data. Yep. You know, it's all about, do, is it aligned to our key KPIs? Is it aligned to, you know, what the market is expecting, what the executive board are expecting? If we don't do that conversion, you're just doing data. Sorry, you're just doing content for the sake of it, not for the fact that you're trying to drive data points. Yeah. I, I... And that's the business you're in. I'm afraid, sorry to say, if you're creative, you better figure that out pretty quick because that that's really where, you know, it, it's all going in the future. You've got to understand that behind all of these content is, is data points that are interesting to the business. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, I talked to, a, a, again, a wide swath of, of content leaders and, and even digital leaders and, and, and senior leadership. And I think that a lot of people have trouble expressing the value of the content that they're creating, especially, you know, the content leaders who are maybe more, you know, you know, creative in nature, maybe not quite as data driven. And it's because they're measuring their broad breadth of work by page views and a time spent metric. Right. And I think that the future of, of content is expressing the value of content by the amount of data that is captured around those experiences or the insights that can be derived from that data. And if creatives and content teams can begin shifting their mindset around that, it doesn't mean that their their content has to change. But if it thinks they they change their mindset about how they're reporting their value internally and how the value of their work is is recognized, that will be a big shift in the way that those teams get funded, the way that they're represented in senior leadership roles um, and and so on. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think this is the underlying science of content. Uh, and, you know, the financial investment in, in content. And, yeah, it's the interesting part, really. I mean, I think there's a lot of people miss this, and I think they're, they're missing, uh, you know, the decision-making that needs to be put in place to, to generate content. And, uh, as you say, it's all about audience and the, the interactions and the exchange that you get out of it. So that's why we're very much driven by, you know, by, by data-informed content decision in almost everywhere in, in the organization. Yeah. Um, so the, the, one of the final questions I want to ask you is around, um, just kind of emerging trends. You mentioned AI, 
Are there any trends that you're tracking that maybe are a little bit under the radar right now, but you think that they're, you know, they're going to be the, the next big thing in the next, you know, 12 to, to 18 months? Well, a lot. I think from my industry, I go, I go back. I mean, I think, uh, uh, I think the fintech industry is, is fascinating at the minute. You know, uh, I think the, the sheer uh, number of entries into the fintech environment and you track any of the fintech ETFs over the past two years and these have kind of exploded and, and built different uh, uh, consumer relationships in, in, in managing uh, payment terms. So I think that one for me is very interesting to see the mobilization in different economies mm-hmm. around the world is fascinating. I mean, we've even got some markets in Malaysia you know, where they're converting, you know, digital footprint to, to physical cash, you know, which is the other way around. You know, you think most people go to a bank and put money in to, to, to take it out on a card, and yet we've got some markets where people uh, uh, are taking, you know, cards that we, we press money on to do a cash transaction because of the cash economy. But I think fintech's interesting, you know, and I think this will be very interesting in mobilizing consumer behavior and consumer purchasing behavior. And you're seeing this in Latin America. You're seeing it in uh, lower to medium economies. And I think that one to me is vastly interesting. I'd keep that space very open. Uh, at the minute, you've seen you know PayPal develop my, uh, uh, a Mastercard and Visa respond to it, and you'll see them merging into these you know bigger adoptive uh, payment providers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing uh, that I that I definitely see going on. I think AI, again, I still think is very formative. You know, I think it's still quite a confused market space. I think the big thing for us is how do we use uh, AI decisioning tools agnostic of the of the channel delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what we're seeing is a lot of people coming up with AI technologies, but they're heavily embedded in the application layers. And these are very, very difficult to, to utilize, um, particularly if your data isn't separated. So I still think AI has got a long way to go. You know, we see a, a, we've done a lot of work with IBM and Salesforce and, and Sprinkler and even Google on the AI, but I still think this is development is, is big. The third thing is keep an eye on is, is the emerging marketplaces. And I don't mean uh, your, your Amazons and Lazadas and these people. I'm talking the platforms like uh, Viber and, uh, and WhatsApp and, uh, and WeChat and Telegram. You know, once they get to a specific level of of uh, user intent and, and user volume, these guys will commercialize. Mm-hmm. So to me, these are going to be the interesting players in terms of we're already doing a lot of transactions through Viber, for instance. Viber is a massively effective platform for us. And it's a massively effective for the consumers because they're in the environment that they want to be in. So we, we are that the third trait we are seeing is definitely the erosion of owned marketplaces to the proliferation of being in your marketplace. So I think this is another big shift. And it's a shift in how you think about content. It's a shift in how you think about presenting content because you're really building content not for your equity, but for the equity that is their equity right. out there. And certainly from our point of view, it's fast, you know, it's hugely scalable. You know, you've got audiences out there ready to meet. So I think that one, again, keep your eyes on because I think these are the emerging companies. And, you know, do the WhatsApp then a little bit like Amazon did. You know, you, you go and put books online and then you go and buy Waterstones. You know, you go and put food online and then you go and buy Whole Foods. Who are these big guys going to go and buy Lazada and buy these other marketplaces of the future? That to me is the third one. Yeah. So they're about the three three big things that, that, that I keep seeing, you know, obviously we have to focus on uh, emerging platforms to, to generate revenue, you know, so yet again, it's sort of be boring, but I have to go back to the business, you know, that I'm driven by business. But, you know, these are the three, you know, big emerging things that, that we're seeing to be. And then the fourth one to me is what does this new economy look like? You know, I think what you, we've seen is, a massive pivot to, to, to online. We've all seen it, you know, with massive revenue growth from Zoom and everybody else. But what does the back channel look like? How is it going to settle in the future? And I think, you know, I've seen some companies that were not prepared for uh, what happened. And then they lurched way, way to digital. Now it's gone and swung back mm-hmm. to, to traditional. And I think it'll be interesting to see where that lands 
in, in the future, not specific to content. But what I'm saying is that when you see these transitions, they're not always long lasting. You know, there can be a wave and don't, don't give up the past and go to the new without understanding that it could level back again. So you've got to be careful with your investment strategies. I think, you know, from a content perspective and, and from a, a consumer perspective, because it, it is quite quick that they come back to normality. And if you're not there with the right, with the right experience, then you're going to miss out. So it's not easy because I don't think you can go one way or another. I think you've got to be everywhere you possibly can and just figure out where the best best investment strategy is. Do you think one of those things that you mentioned will end up on your, your list of four of internet, Wi-Fi, Facebook, camera? <laughs> Is there, is there, a, uh, what's, what's the fifth? What's the next one? I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is kind of interesting. Well, I think the fifth one for me is probably going to be a uh, um, low bandwidth wide area network. I mean, I think this is the fifth one. So I think the transition will, will change with device connectivity through the emergence of, uh, uh, of uh, low bandwidth wide area yeah. network. I mean, I think this is the emerging one. I mean, people talk about connected TV. I kind of get it with connected TV, but you're still doing the same kind of mapping. You know, you've still got an audience and they're looking at TV. So I get a lot of people talking to me about that. It doesn't kind of switch me on too much. But I think the, the enablement of uh, uh, wide area bandwidth, low uh, uh, bandwidth uh, to device connectivity is going to be very interesting because then we're going to lose the Bluetooth. Mm connector now we're going to be agnostic of platform and, and what you're going to see is that no longer will you have to work within the confines of a mac os or you know the combines of a, a android ios you're going to be agnostic of that so you're going to be able to use web apps you know outside of these environments not caught by the os control of bluetooth and the api layer so to me so to make it too complex but the the emergence of being able to port low uh, low bandwidth wide area network into this right. you know into this it is going to really ease the way that you push content around and i think that's the one uh, that i will see over the next two to three years to to see whether that's an enhancement of the wi-fi <laughs> but you know that's the one to me that will be all the connected devices that so far we haven't got yeah it's all about yeah the connectivity and the the, the distributed network um yeah fascinating um David, we're up on, on time here. I want to be conscious of that. Um, any any parting words or, or, or wisdom for the uh, for the audience? Yeah, I think a couple of things. I mean, a uh, just be aware that I've learned more from from making uh, well informed decisions and 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 uh, failing at them. You know, so learn from the things that don't work. I keep saying to people, there's a reason that WD forty is called WD forty. They they learned thirty nine ways of not to make an aerosol lubricant. <laughs> Never heard that one before. Um, that's, that's that's good. Look it look it up. Oh, it's actually a really good story. But you know the the thirty nine failures are just learnings. You know I think these are learnings moving forward. You know you and the second thing is you know strategy only gets validated through execution. So please, you know I think we spend a lot of time. You know MIT strategy IMDL be a strategy lead be a strategy lead. There's a great book called The Four Disciplines of Execution, which I adore, which is a book about how you should execute and why execution really matters above strategy. And I think this is the thing I would say to people is that that ability to be able to fail in a structured way is really important to understand what you should be doing, because understanding what you shouldn't do helps you understand what you should be doing. I teach my teams about this all the time, that this healthy declaration of failure it's not. It's a learning. You know, it's like don't come in with a problem because that's something you want me to fix. You've got to come in with a challenge because that's something that you want to fix. I think you've got to kind of think. So that to me, in, in reflected to content, is please keep doing it. Yeah, Please keep talking to vendors. Please keep innovating. But be structured in the way you do it and, and make sure that there's, that there's an upside to, to what you do. And the final thing I'd say that I've learned over the years. A lot of people talk about return on investment, but there's another ROI which is just as important, which is the risk of inaction. Okay, and and everybody, I've seen a lot of business people go in, I, I've had it over the years, and ROI can get attacked by a finance person very, very quickly because they can just use different measures yep. to declare it. 
But the risk of inaction is massive. The risk of not doing something probably has more impact to the brand. So again, you know, please keep focusing on ensuring that you don't get stale and you stop, you know, doing the things you should be doing because the risk of inaction of not doing something is probably more to the business than actually, you know, just saying, I'm not going to do it. This is not the place to be. There's the bit under the ice, under the water that's really important and you can't forget this. So I think they're my, my bits. And the final thing is, you know, always do something that you don't think you can uh, that you can do. I think it's really important that whenever you work in life that you do a role that, that uh, gives you sleepless nights and puts shivers down your back because if you're not doing that, you're not really living, you know, you know through, through the experiences that will be valuable for the next thing. So you've got to keep trunking on, and I do this all the time, you know, with, with my team and myself. You've got to keep pushing yourself into areas where, you know, you put yourself at risk and then you think differently and you grow. So a little bit on business, a little bit on being personal, but they're the kind of things that I've kept close to me over the years. And, and so far, I'm, I'm still around. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, with the, the bits of wisdom given, um, we'll wrap it up. Um, thank you, David. Uh, great conversation. We covered a lot of, uh, a lot of topics from uh, content to technology to you know, make sure you fail, but fail in the right way. So yeah, yeah. appreciate it and uh, look forward to, uh, to chatting again sometime soon. Perfect. Right. Thank you very much. Yep. Thanks, Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pros and Content. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with David Parker. One point that resonated with us is how data and content influence each other. The lens and feedback data provides can inform content and content should enhance your data. David is no longer an active employee at Philip Morris International, and the opinions expressed in this interview are solely his and do not necessarily reflect those of PMI. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any suggestions or feedback, send a note to hello at notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. And if you have anything to add, tweet us at hashtag pros and content. Tune in next time. This episode was edited by Douglas Ray and produced by Ellen Schwartz and Andrew Bolton.